This is Meredith Nelson with the Mormon Women Project, and today we are publishing an interview which I conducted back in March, and I apologize that the sound quality is not perfection, but I promise this is a very worthwhile listen. I had the pleasure of interviewing Janice Johnson and Jenny Reeder, authors of The Witness of Women, First-Hand Experiences and Testimonies from the Restoration. Janice Johnson is a professor of religion at BYU-Idaho, and Jenny is a 19th century women's history specialist for the LDS Church History Department. I hope you enjoy hearing what they have to share about our Mormon foremothers and the process of writing this book. If you enjoy this podcast and the hundreds of interviews with modern Mormon women in our online library, please share with your friends and consider making a tax-deductible donation at www.mormonwomen.com to help us fund interview transcription and website support. Denise Johnson and Jenny Reeder, we are so glad to have you both here. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having um, us. So I wanted to start by just introducing what The Witness of Women is. So the book has the, the voices and the experiences, the witnesses of over 100 different early Latter-day Saint women. We wanted to make a resource that would make it super easy to incorporate women's voices into our lessons. It's particularly kind of focused on gospel doctrine this year, which is Doctrine and Covenants in Church History. But the chapters are set up topically, so you could really use it for any sort of lesson or talk preparation. We wanted to make mm-hmm. the, the, it just a super easy resource to know these women and to incorporate their experience into how we teach, but also our own experience. Wonderful. So so it's organized by topic, and it's a collection of just quotes from um, early Latter-day Saint women. And yeah. it includes 18 topics and then a lot of subtopics, ranging right. from gifts of the Spirit to Joseph Smith to the Book of Mormon um, to consecration to the temple. So there's there's, I think, a lot that people would just be interested in reading for their personal study, too. I'm interested, Absolutely. since the book was released a few months ago, how have you heard of it being used and what response have you received from readers? One of my friends says she actually uses it in her personal scripture study. So I think that's really great. And because if you if you happen to study by topic in your personal study, it's really it's it's an easy way to, to look at things. Last week I presented for actually my wards release society anniversary celebration, um, birthday celebration, and a woman who actually isn't in my ward came up to me, and she had a copy of the book. She actually asked me to sign it, and but it was already a little bit crumpled, and she totally apologized <laughs> that it was crumpled, and I was like, no, that's amazing. You're using it. This is what we want. We want people to use it. Um, my cousin sent me a text and said, this is better than anything I have on my shelf to, as a resource as I'm preparing to teach a joint young men and young women next week. So we love to hear those stories of people actually using it. 
Um, many people also talk about just sitting down and, and reading it. My, um, I, I have had friends tell me that they have just sitting down and, and reading it, you know, read a few different accounts before they go to bed or along with their scripture study. And that's a fantastic thing. My mom went to a Relief Society activity last night, and they they made it into a reader's theater for their event. And the quote that really stood out oh, to her, wow. the woman that was in, in charge, used a quote from the book, that, and she said at the end, it nerved me up. <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea. I, I have to admit, my copy got a little battered, and I've been using my parents' copy that I gave to them, and so I had to just order them a new one. <laughs> I, I messed those up too much. Um, we love that. And, we you know, I was thinking that. that, yeah, and and not only is it great for topic study, I know you organized it so that people could easily just look up a topic and see what someone had to say, but it is interesting reading the book from front to back, which I've done, because it does, it, I, you know, it's not chronological. As you say, it's not a standard historical narrative, but but reading it from the back, you get the full picture of this journey uh, in the early church. So I, I do recommend that people do that at some point. There are some women that appear in different sections. And so if you do read mm-hmm. it front to back, you can see them in different sort of situations and, and how they handle different things. And you can think, oh, I remember when Hannah Cornaby said this earlier in this book. So it's kind of fun to see that progression, too. Yeah, and although it's not a a strict chronology, we do kind of basically follow that expansion of the restoration. And I I really love the fact that we get to see, you know, some of the quotes will actually be familiar to people, but maybe they didn't know a woman said them, or they, you know, they didn't know that this story about Joseph came from a woman's account, or they didn't, you know, make that connection before. And we begin to see the restoration through women's eyes and but it is mm-hmm. always really personal it's that how they're in, experiencing it in it themselves it's not just someone mm-hmm. talking about these events but it's it's always intertwined with with their own experience and how they're processing and how they're learning that was another response that I saw from a reader that there was such a variety of emotions that there was joy that there was grief and mourning and strength and weakness. And I think it's exciting to be able to see the emotion part of it, not just the historical data and facts of it. So we're historians and do like that part, but (laughs) the emotion ties it together. Yeah, right. And and it makes it real. Um, I wanted to start by just diving into the book itself. Are you prepared to share a couple of favorite quotes from the book and then just briefly what they mean to you or what they mean for us as a church. Denise, do you have something for us? Um, well, I, as I was thinking about this this morning, I was thinking about the wide variety of experience. Um, and I was thinking about two women in particularly, um, Zina D.H. Young and Eliza R. Snow. Eliza is probably better known to people than Zina is. But on paper, their experiences are very similar. They both become plural wives of Joseph Smith. They both later become plural wives of Brigham Young. Um, They're both General Relief Society presidents. But long before any of that happened, when they joined the church, um, before they joined the church or when they were first getting to know the church, Zina, her first experience with the Book of Mormon 
is that she sees the Book of Mormon on the shelf, um, on a windowsill in her family's home, and she sees it and she instantaneously knows it's true. She has this epiphany, this, this spiritual experience in that moment, and the spirit testifies to her it is true. And she says she picks up the book and held it to her breast and said, oh, truth, truth, truth. Now, Eliza R. Snow has her mother joins the church. Her sister joins the church. Eliza has some remarkable experiences. She meets Joseph Smith. She likes him. She's impressed by him. She, she hears the testimony of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon, and she says she's never heard such an impressive testimony. But for her, it takes her years of studying the Book of Mormon. And, and being sure, she wants to be completely sure. And it takes her four years to the, come to the point where she's ready to be baptized. And at that point, she says, my heart was fixed. Once her heart is fixed, she doesn't deviate from that. That, that remains. But I just really like those examples of kind of the breadth of experience. There is no one way to be a Latter-day Saint woman. There is no one way that, that we all experience the gospel or we feel the spirit or get answers to our prayers. And that timing is going to be different for, for everyone. I love that, Denise. That was some, something I learned from the book. I had not known Eliza the skeptic before I read this book. Um, I just didn't know that part of her journey and that it took her, what was it, four years before she yeah. was willing to be baptized? Yeah. And, and another thing you said struck me, one of our stated purposes at the Mormon Women Project is to present the diversity of Mormon women who are sometimes mistaken as a basically homogenous group. <laughs> and right. I realized while reading The Witness of Women that I have made an error in envisioning our Mormon foremothers all wearing the same dress and bonnet, with the exception <laughs> of a few obvious a few obvious outliers, right, that whose names we all know, but... Um, yeah. There are so many voices and stories in one little volume. <clears throat> it becomes clear really quickly that the women of the early church had very diverse backgrounds and motivations and responses to their shared experiences like, like Eliza and, and Dinah. So that was an awakening for me to realize I had been not giving them their due as a very diverse group. Jenny, do you have a quote you want to share with us? Yes, I actually want to tell you, um, I, I love Zina and Eliza, and I've known them for years in my research. There was one woman who I really came to discover in research for this book that I, I wasn't aware of. Her name is Hannah Cornaby, and she was born in England in 1822, and she was born to a family, um, of, uh, they belonged to the Church of England, but they were seekers. And they read the Bible and knew the Bible and looked for signs in nature. It's prophesied in the Bible. And I just love her story, her childhood. She talks about how her, the, the Bible was her mother's sacred companion. And she taught Hannah passages by memory. And that, that sort of allowed her religious desires to deepen and her anxiety to understand the plan of human redemption. Um, years later, Hannah married... And she and her husband opened a bookstore, and missionaries visited the bookstore. <laughs> Excuse me. And they had, um, that's where they met the church. And it's it just such a beautiful thing to me that she it had a lifetime of preparation. And years later, she and her husband went to Utah 
They lost his son, Henry, in 1856, a son, Walter, in 1859, a daughter, Grace, in 1864, and then Hannah herself had a debilitating illness. And she writes about both grief and her miraculous healing. And then her husband, their family becomes very destitute. And they live in Spanish Fork, and her husband goes to Salt Lake City for work, but becomes severely ill. And she receives this amazing revelation to know the means by which she could find him and help him. So it's not necessarily a quote, but it's a story of a lifetime that I'd never heard of. She was also a poet. And she, the fact that she recorded these events both before becoming a member of the church and later with the knowledge that the Bible and, had given her and her mother had instilled in her of her faith and her ability to connect with God is such a beautiful, wonderful, individualized thing. I just love it. I love that. And I was introduced to so many women whose names I had never heard. Um, by reading, so I've been I've been a lifelong member of the church and very interested in church history. So I was really excited to meet some new faces. I was just going to say, I, you know, I want to share one more. It's really a quote, an actual quote. I love this by Caroline Barnes Crosby. When she and her husband decided to leave their family and join the saints in Kirtland, she said, "We had to set our faces as a flint, Zionward." And we're ready to forsake all to gain that port. It's this whole idea of, of consecration. We had, we had set our faces as a flint Zionward. And I think that's what we see throughout this whole book. These women are setting their faces Zionward. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. It's beautiful seeing these women's poetic expression. You know, different, different women and kind of different ideas and different ways to express themselves. As Jenny was talking about that, I was thinking about Phoebe, um, let's see if I can get her name right, um, Phoebe Crosby Peck. And Phoebe um, joined the church early with the Colesville Saints, and she they leave their home in New York. She goes to, to Kirtland, and then very quickly the Colesville Saints get sent, after a kind of traumatic time in Kirtland, they get sent to, to Zion, to, to Missouri, in Jackson County. And she writes this letter to her sister-in-law. Phoebe is a widow. She has five children. She's trying to care for her children. And her sister-in-law had planned to leave New York with them, but at the last second had jumped off the back of a wagon and gone off and gotten eloped. And um, she had gotten eloped. That's a little awkward. She eloped um, with this with this man. And and Phoebe writes this letter. So she has been through, she had no idea what she was getting herself into when she got baptized. And she could not see. There's this line in the letter. She says, I had no idea that I, that I would be asked to come thus far. And I think that we see that, that consistency, that they don't recognize, no one sees what, what's ahead. But, and she pleads with Anna, her, her sister-in-law, that she needs to give up all for Christ. And I like these different, um, these different expressions, you know, like Flint set our face towards Zion, or that she needs to be able to give up all for Christ. Phoebe had taken that step, and she didn't know what what lay ahead, but she believed that that it was worth it, and she wants to share that with with others. 
and seeing that consistently with so many women in so many different ways, I think is a really beautiful thing. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. It definitely gives me pause as a modern Mormon woman, you know, to see if I am if I am so set towards Zion <laughs> myself, um, and and I'm ready to sacrifice the way they did. Um, and you're right, the language is so beautiful throughout the book. There were also a lot of uh, it seemed like quite a few letters to family included that were just exhortations to people to to join with the saints or or to give. Um, the Book of Mormon a chance, or and it was it was nice to see women in that role of exhorting and calling to repentance and preaching, because we don't often I think picture the early women of the church doing that. Yeah, one uh, s- several of those letters actually came from um, I I focused on early Mormon women's letters for my master's thesis, and it's interesting to me because but consistently in those letters when they're writing to not, you know, family members or friends who are outside of the church, they are consistently bold with how they share truth. And I am certain that not every one of those women are bold in their day-to-day conversations. You know, I am certain that some of those women are shy and perhaps a little drawn back. But yeah, that role of, of exhortation is something that the the spirit almost compels them that they ha- need to share this once they've found truth, likely high. Once they've tasted the fruit, they want to share it with others, and they do so in a really beautifully bold, outspoken manner. And I love that how mm-hmm. that that charge actually comes um, to Emma Smith in section twenty five of the Doctrine and Covenants in eighteen thirty, when through Joseph Smith the Lord tells her. She has this charge to expound truth and to exhort the church. So that is given to a woman. And then at the end of the section, it says, this is my voice unto all. And I love that because you can see that manifest in this book from so many different women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that brings me to another question that probably has an obvious answer for you, but maybe isn't something that, that some of our listeners have thought about. Um, you call the book The Witness of Women. Why is the witness of women important? Is there something distinct about the witness of women? Um, I, th- I think Jenny specifically talking about the charge to Emma Smith to expound scripture and exhort the church. Um, and when we get to the Utah period in Relief Societies, they will read section 25 as this standard for how women are to, to operate in, um, in the restoration. Uh, more recently, we've had President Nelson encourage women to speak up and speak out. And sometimes I think in the middle of all of that, we forget about just how essential that is, that, that we let our voices be heard, that, that we share our experiences. I believe that we are strengthened through that diversity of experiences, that as I read these women's experiences, I am strengthened. As I sit in Relief Society and hear when women in my ward take a little bit of a risk sometimes and are open and um, share their experience, even if it doesn't quite match what, you know, the expectation is, I am strengthened by that. And it is our responsibility. In Scripture, we don't get a whole lot of women's voices. 
but those those voices that we get I think stick with us because they're not the norm. Um, the first women, woman that that Nephi mentions in the Book of Mormon is his mother, and he is writing this account 30 years later, and the testimony of his mother sticks with him. And she says, now I know of a surety. And that's fascinating to me that 30 years later, those words from, from Nephi's mother still stick with him. And perhaps his culture did not, you know, encourage him or suggest that he would, you know, even give us his wife's name or have women be a major part of, of his narrative. But this testimony and this witness of his mother stuck with him. I also think it's really interesting. The voice of women has always been important, but it hasn't always been remembered or recorded. Um, there's a wonderful American women's religious historian named Catherine Breckis, who has found many of these women's voices. So she knows that they that, that women in America exhorted and expounded, especially evangelical women. They're in the records. But those records aren't necessarily utilized or used in history. And I think we're at a really propitious time right now in the year 2017, where we've reached a point where we need to recognize the women and the value of these women. The Church Public Affairs Department has made a special effort to address the voice, visibility, and value of women. General auxiliary leaders are serving on general church councils and are speaking and praying more in conferences and are appearing more predominantly in the church. And we have women like the Mormon Women Project or um, movements like Mormon Women Stand and aspiring Mormon women, um, even outside the church, the Women's March, things like this. This is an important time for women to come forward and to recognize their value and their voice and their contribution to society and to family and to church and to everything. Yeah, it's like there's something in the air. <laughs> um yeah, even absolutely. even just in our little our little niche in the church, I mean there's there's this book, um, The Witness of Women, released in the last what, three months. And then we had the first fifty years of Relief Society uh last year and then Jenny, you have a recent book from the pulpit highlighting yeah. um uh, more recent church leaders' voices um, as well. And um, so you're right. It, it, it does seem like this is, this is a time for, for highlighting these voices and, and unburying them. And then for those of us who are alive now to, to share our own. Um, I wanted to ask you both as historians what your perspective is on this movement. What, what do you think is the most urgent work remaining to be done in Mormon women's history? So I I was in um, I taught I I presented for a Relief Society last night for their celebration and I asked them and our friend Brittany Chapman Nash has has done this a number of times and written a little bit on this but she would go around to different groups of women and ask them how many Mormon women they know and they historical. know. Historical. Yeah, how many historical Mormon women do they know? Women of the rest, early restoration. And they consistently say Emma Smith, Eliza R. Snow, Mary Fielding Smith, and Lucy Mack Smith. And I have I have followed in Brittany's 
um, pattern there, and I have done this a number of times, and it has been kind of like clockwork. Get those four and maybe one or two more. And I I think about this early history. I think that we we need, we have lots of resources now. We're beginning to get those resources so that, that we can know these women and know their experiences. But we have to do the work of using what, using these resources and continuing to expand it. Um, I kind of think about Mormon women's history as a tapestry. In the 19th century, there are um, a, lo- a, a lot of different efforts to, to record women's voices. The women's exponent is the, the, mag- the magazine, the newspaper of the Relief Society from like 1872 to what, Jenny, 1914? Yeah. And Brigham Young gives Emmeline Wells the ch- a charge, Emmeline is editor, the charge to record women's voices and record women's history. Um, Women of Mormondom was published in 1877, and Edward Tulich collected, the Relief Society actually asked for women to send in their their personal experiences. The book, um, Jenny, I'm totally blanking. Representative Women of Deseret. Perfect. That's why we work so Um, well together. (laughs) You can finish the sentences. Um, representative women of Deseret did much the same thing. And so there was this, in the early 19th century, or I mean late 19th century, but in the early Utah period, there was a huge effort to make these women's voices known. But I think about the tapestry of the Restoration has really gone into disrepair over time. You know, a tapestry will collect dirt, and parts of it will become threadbare, and there are colors and and pe- colors that have faded and pieces that are threadbare that where we can't see those images anymore. And Julie Beck said that we better know who we are through our history. And I completely believe that. And I believe if we're going to understand our role and really have a vision for how we need to move forward, and maybe that vision is a little bit different for all of us or that, that mission that we have to perform is a little different for all of us. But I believe that as we better understand our spiritual foremothers, when we see that tapestry of the restoration in all its brilliant colors and all the people and all the textures and all the different parts of it, that we can better understand who we are and how we need to move forward in this world to continue that that project. Today, we're actually, this is, I didn't even think about this until today, but today is the 175th anniversary of the Relief Society. And as we embark in that project to save souls, we need a vision. And I believe that our past, as we look at it as a whole, can give us that vision. I would love to add that this is not a book just for women. It's a book that contains the stories of women. And I love hearing so many people say, oh, I bought this book for my mom or my sisters or my daughters. That's awesome. But I think everybody needs to use read this book, men and women. I think men need to include this book in their teaching and in their understanding in order to have a full integrated understanding and history of the restoration we need to include those women how powerful is it 
to have a man share the experience of a woman. There are a couple of examples in our book where the women that, that we share their amazing testimonies didn't write them down. Mary Whitmer's grandson shared her story of being another witness of the gold, gold plates of the Book of Mormon. Um, Heber J. Grant wrote down the story of his mother, Rachel Grant, prophesying, blessing and praying him, praying for him as a child that he would grow up to be righteous. So I think instead of just a compensatory history where we make up for the fact that we have sort of lost these women, that we really need to integrate them and everybody needs to use them. Yeah, I think that that's a big challenge in the church and in our culture in general is seeing women's history as not just for women and women's stories as not just for women. Um, yeah. That it's, it's, a cru- it's a crucial piece of, of the whole picture of, of our history. It's half of it, really, the women's experiences. That's a, I think that's a challenge that we face as a church of overcoming that, that notion that women's history is for women. Think of how much we're missing out on. You know, if we just, I mean, Mormon history and that, that I'm going to continue my tapestry metaphor, but that tapestry of the restoration is not just Brigham's and Joseph's history. It's, it's Eliza's and it's Laura Clark's belt and these people that we've, you know, that we've perhaps never heard of, that we need all of that to come together if we're truly going to understand the restoration. And there are life experiences that aren't just women's experiences. Uh, Mary Fielding Snow writes a Mary Fielding Snow. Mary Fielding Smith writes a letter to her sister. She's in Curland. She's by herself. Her sister's just gotten married and gone on a mission to Canada. And her brother went on a mission to England, and she's left trying to care for herself in Curland. She's recently moved there. She's a recent convert, and she writes in this letter. She's has a position as a governess, but it's about to end. And she says, the time expires tomorrow when I expect to be at liberty or without employment. But I feel my mind pretty much at rest on that subject. I have called upon the Lord for direction and trust he will open my way. All of us have those moments of insecurity and not knowing what's coming next. That that there is there is something very universal about some of these experiences that that we all have a piece. Other experiences, maybe we won't experience the same thing, but in learning about someone else's experience, it expands our ability to be empathetic and to to love and take care of other people. Definitely, and I also wonder if a lot of the of the modern questions that we have. Um, as Mormon women, and some of the questions that have been arising and discussed a lot over the last few years, if we would have clearer answers, if we understood the early women's history better of the church, I wonder if there are some answers to our 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 large questions hidden in that tapestry <laughs> that you that you mentioned. Um, you know, I was thinking you know, about that book. last night. I was thinking about the chapter that we have on personal revelation. And I love how we were able to break it down into specific situations of of personal revelation, understanding truth, of personal revelation, seeking guidance, of personal revelation, seeking a personal witness. And these stories of these women, yeah, they they happened in the 19th century. But the fact that Amanda Barnes Smith, 
could figure out how to help her son who had been shot at Hans Mill using the local um, resources that she had means that I can figure out what to do in my situation, in my ward where I don't know what to do or in my, in my job where I don't know what to do. It's like this amazing <laughs> um, comment that we share, but that is so different in different situations. But the, the common principle is that idea that we share that access to such personal revelation. I love that. Yeah, that might be my favorite section of the book. I just um, some amazing stories there. Can I share one more piece from that um, from that section actually that I was thinking about this morning? Also, um, Laura Clark felt um, after the siege at Far West. So this is after the extermination order in Missouri. Her husband ends up at the same time Joseph Joseph and Hiram are in Liberty Jail, and the others. Um, her husband. Morris Phelps with Carly P. Pratt end up in um, in Columbia Jail, and King Follett is also there. Those three are there, and they're actually there for longer than those who are in Liberty Jail. And Laura is a very determined woman. We only have one letter that she's written herself. The other information kind of comes from from um, from family histories, and from her son wrote down a lot of her history. But she's she's writing about going to visit her husband um, at the jail, and it's a distance of about 60 miles that she has to to go. And she talks about taking her two young children in the wagon, and she says the wagon turned over once. I think it hurt them, but a little. And she's yeah. she's very determined. And I'm like, what? You turned over the wagon? Are you kidding me? But she is very <laughs> determined, and she's worried about her husband. And one night she dreams a dream of how they can escape. And she goes to visit them, and Carly has had the same dream. And so they create this plan. Now, I suspect that most of us are not going to be trying to break our husbands out of jail. Um, but <laughs> that same principle that that we, when we have problems, when we need guidance, when we are stuck and completely blank on our own, that God can give us answers and he can give us a way out. And their plan wasn't perfect. It worked really well for Parley and Morris. King Follett got, got caught again, and but they didn't plan what to do with Laura. And she is almost, the jailer turns her out to this mob that is forming who's just heard the Mormons have escaped but someone comes in and rescues her and it's not perfect it's messy but that's how life works and when we open ourselves Mm -hmm. and when we seek that guidance we get that guidance and that help that we need that story is Hollywood material (laughs) (laughs) Jenny did you have anything you wanted to add to that I also love the fact that these women just came together and recognized the difficulty of it together. I want to share one other story. Sarah Darmonski married Charles Rich, and they joined the Saints in Far West, and her husband had to leave, had to escape with Hosea Stout, another man. So they left Sarah and Stout's wife, Samantha, to send for themselves. And while Charles and Hosea promised to stay together, um, Sarah writes that Hosea's wife and I 
made a covenant that her and I would remain together as true friends until we should meet our husbands again. And upon this promise, we shook hands with our dear husbands and parted. Her and I then went into my sister-in-law's house and went to bed praying the Lord to protect ourselves and our dear companions until he saw fit to have us meet again. There's such a beautiful power in this collectivity of women who share this testimony, who share this firsthand experience, who share this revelation. And once they can bring it together, it grows and becomes even bigger than themselves. And it's such a beautiful thing to read about, but it's also such a beautiful thing to see in my own life. Yeah, and that bond for me, I felt it very, very strongly with my current Relief Society sisters and my family, and I've and I've witnessed it in reading about church history between those women. But this book helps to forge that bond between us and them, and it, it had a very strong impact on me, making me feel like a, a member of their Relief Society, um, and feeling some ownership of that that sisterhood and that communion that you're talking about. That's fantastic. Let me ask you. Thanks both before we before we wrap up here, I'm curious about the sources that you drew from to compile the witness of women. Where where did you find these stories? I know you found them probably in so many places. Um, but what specifically would you recommend as further reading for women who are interested in, in learning more? I know that as I read, you do provide before each quote a little bit of context about the women. But I just felt this yearning as I read you know, to have bigger blurbs. And I know you, you couldn't, couldn't fit that into this book. but um, <laughs> We tried. What, tell, we went through a few I bet you did. <laughs> um, so where do I go next? Someone like me who's interested in learning more about these women and brightening up that tapestry, give us some titles. I think some of the, you've mentioned some of the newest things that have come out. Last year we have First 50 Years of Relief Society, which is a collection of, really significant Relief Society documents from 1842 to 1892. And then just recently, this book, At the Pulpit, 185 Years of Discourses of Latter-day Saint Women, which contains talks written by women from 1831 to 2016, a few talks from every decade. So these are documentary books similar to this one. They provide excellent information about, and, and the words and biographical information about the women that have given them. There's also a great series that's been ongoing, Women of, the, of Faith in the Latter Days, which is a little more biographical, but that's a fantastic source as well. And really, a lot of the Mormon women's history that has been done has been biographical. And that is this kind of first stage of filling in these blanks and filling in these parts of that, that tapestry that we we don't know about. Yeah, I would want to to second the the Women in Faith series, but also to just kind of give an additional highlight. So I just started reading the Adam Pulpit book. And these are are women's talks, women acting as theologians, expounding scripture, and exhorting the church. Um, And there's, within the tradition, so Emma's given that, that charge, and she comes from a Methodist background. And for Methodists, it's okay for women to exhort and share their experience and they can testify and witness. But 
that that work of being a theologian of expounding scripture and teaching was not something that women were that that was appropriate for women to do and and I kind of wonder if Emma has some discomfort. She gets the revelation twenty five and eighteen thirty and we don't really see much of her expounding scripture when she gets called as the president of the Relief Society, and I've just been thinking about this this week. This is not an entirely developed thought. But Joseph talks about her expounding scripture to the female population of the church, while the revelation actually says to the church as a whole. And I think that that I wonder if that change is, is something to do with Emma's discomfort. But I love reading these at the pulpit, reading women's, discourses and women as theologians, women expounding on scripture. And there are so many great examples there. Elder Maxwell used to say quite a bit that for a long time, we have had this mistaken idea that women are charitable and men are the theologians or the scriptorians. And he said, we need more men who are charitable and we need more women who are scriptorians and who can expound scripture. And that pattern is came in 1830 with, with that revelation in section 25 to, to Emma. And this is a beautiful example, kind of a, an extension given us a women's journal of discourses. And P.S., I think we need a whole bunch more volumes, Jenny. So could you get on that? I do too. I'm working <laughs> on it. I've, I've got okay. plans. Those are some excellent recommendations. I, I've been looking forward to diving into At the Pulpit myself, so maybe that's for another conversation <laughs> in the future. <laughs> yes. um, what, is, what is next for both of you? What do you have lined up? <laughs> I'll go first. We are starting this really great new project um, at the Church History Department where we are trying to make accessible 19th century Relief Society minute books. And this is a huge endeavor. We have over 1,000 minute books that local release societies kept the minutes of their meetings. And I'm talking until the year 1900. And we have minute books from all over Utah. We have minute books from Mexico and from the Mormon Corridor. And even from like um, Scandinavia and England and the Polynesian Islands. And what we want to do is create a database. So there's kind of two parts to it. And we're going to have to, because it's such a huge project, we're going to crowdsource it. So we need women and men to become involved in transcribing and indexing. That's the first part. And then the second part is just that it's creating a database where you can go look up your great, great, great grandmother and see what she donated or said in her Relief Society. And this will be connected to Mm -hmm. family search. So it provides both a family history component, but also an academic component where we scholars can use women and they're readily accessible. And it, it's really exciting. It's a huge project. You're going to hear a lot more about it because we're going to need everybody to engage in it. And that's also <laughs> the exciting part. Wow, that is exciting. <laughs> I I was not aware of these minute books. I mean, I knew some that existed because I've read quotes from them here or there, but I didn't know there was such a quantity of them. So that's really exciting. It's such a treasure and we want to make them accessible and usable and they're they're amazing. I'm really excited. And in the 19th century, they actually take good minutes 
that are really interesting. <laughs> I, I suspect many of our minutes today are not quite as interesting. Um, so for my yeah. my project, I have I have a few irons and fires. A couple of projects are I'm still I'm working on the history of the prosecution for the Mountain Meadows massacre. So this is a very different angle of my my expertise. But <laughs> um, this spring I have the Mountain Meadows Massacre collected legal papers, which of which I'm the general editor, and those are coming out from the University of Oklahoma Press. And I have a couple others trying to prepare my dissertation for publication, which was also on the prosecution for the massacre. Another book about the massacre. Uh, my more fun project is actually looking at early Book of Mormon usage. We actually know really very little about how the early saints begin to incorporate new scripture into um, into their lives. You know, with the Book of Mormon, suddenly they've got, first edition Book of Mormon has 538 pages. You know, they've been studying the Bible all their lives. They know it inside and out. And suddenly they have all this new scripture in addition to new revelations. And I'm really interested in in kind of what, what that means, um, how they... They use that new scripture, how it becomes part of their lives. And much of that has been kind of spurned on by all of the research that we have done for the witness of women, because I keep finding these bits and pieces and I'm finding people who are readily quoting from the Book of Mormon. They're quoting from new scripture. And I'm really interested to to kind of continue to look at that and also look at if, if it's different in women's lives versus men's lives. Fascinating. That's a question I've never asked. <laughs> I look forward to seeing what you come up with. Um, it looks like we might have to have you both back again to discuss these projects. Um, oh, absolutely. We're not done yet. <laughs> We've got wonderful. lots to do. I am so thankful for The Witness of Women and this book that you've produced. It's just a phenomenal resource. I want to thank both of you for contributing to it and for being here to share it with us today. And we will look forward to having you both back another time. Thank you, Denise, and thank you, Jenny.